This podcast from Teacher is supported by the Australian Volunteers Program. Are you interested in supporting communities overseas? Become a remote volunteer. Visit australianvolunteers.com to learn more. Thanks for listening to this podcast special from Teacher Magazine. I'm Rebecca Vukovic. ACER's research conference is back in 2021 after a COVID-19 pandemic pause last year. The fully online event kicks off in August and runs from the 16th to the 20th. The 2021 theme is excellent progress for every student. What will it take? and will feature international researchers from a range of disciplines. One of the keynote speakers this year is Rich Lira, Professor Emeritus and Research Professor of Education at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. A former high school science teacher, Rich is a member of the National Academy of Education, a fellow of the American Educational Research Association, and a recipient of the American Psychological Association's Distinguished Contributions in Applications of Psychology to Education. Ahead of the event next month, I sat down with Rich to discuss his research that explores science and mathematics education for elementary school students in the US. He also gives listeners a taste of what he'll be sharing at the conference and why he decided to name his keynote address Accountable Assessment. Let's jump in. Professor Rich Lira, thanks for joining Teacher Magazine. Thanks for having me. It's great to sit down with you ahead of ACER's Research Conference 2021, where you'll be a keynote speaker at the online event. I know your keynote address is all about accountable assessment, and I have a few questions to ask you about that topic later in the episode, but for now, I'd like to hear more about your research on children's mathematical and scientific reasoning in the context of schooling. Before we get to that though, could you start by giving listeners a brief overview of your professional background and how you came to be in your current role at Vanderbilt University? Oh, well, it started um, a few decades ago. I was a high school chemistry teacher, and I was, um, uh, well, to date myself a bit, I was um, having uh, students solve problems. And as they solve problems, I asked them to uh, think aloud and and talk and tell me about what they were thinking about. And I put uh, cassette uh, tape recorders, the the technology of the time, on uh, desks. And... um, then I would uh, go home in evenings and, and listen to, um, to what they had to say. So it gave me some insight into what they were thinking, what they found challenging, uh, what they found easy, which I often w- was surprised by. And so uh, then I learned that um, some people actually um, had a profession like this. So I took myself off to the local university and uh, as I was teaching, started to, to learn about um, how people thought about um, uh, learning and instruction. 
And these were my first ever uh, experiences with this. I had uh, only taken uh, classes in uh, sciences until that point. So uh, eventually um, I was convinced to, uh, to try to go get um, a PhD and, uh, and did so um, in educational psychology. And um, at the time there was a very heavy emphasis on uh, rigor in, in um, experiment. Uh, so I also had quite a bit of um, uh, experience in uh, statistics. Uh, I went to, from there to the University of Wisconsin at Madison in the Department of Educational Psychology. I spent uh, nearly uh, two decades there. And um, then I was invited uh, to join the faculty at uh, Vanderbilt University. And I found uh, that very compelling because there were a lot of people there that were interested in the same kinds of issues that I was interested in. So I've been there ever since. So that's another um, nearly uh, 20 years now. Wow. And now I'd like to hear a little bit about your work on mathematical and scientific reasoning in the classroom. I understand that this research focuses on the design of learning environments and involves collaboration with teachers in local schools. Could you tell me a bit about this work? Uh, sure. Well, the, um, the essential uh, question for me is, is, is it possible to think about re-envisioning uh, mathematics and science education uh, for children in ways that put them into contact with some of the ways in which people in these disciplines tend to generate and revise knowledge. Of course, they're not going to be like um, uh, copies of mathematicians or scientists, but rather can we engage them in fruitful kinds of approximations to how people in those disciplines think. And I was also uh, very interested in uh, alternative routes uh, to a mathematics education uh, centered in space and geometry and uh, data, because these, of course, are very useful as you think about um, modeling in uh, sciences and, um, and how to get a grip on natural systems often involve uh, generating quantities and thinking about quantitative uh, relationships. So what might be children uh, versions of, of, those, of that enterprise? So that's, those were the driving questions. And of course, these are matters of development and development doesn't occur in a vacuum. It has to be systematically supported. And so that meant that it um, was logical to uh, work uh, in partnership with teachers uh, because um, they would be the ones uh, conducting uh, instruction and orchestrating conversations with, uh, with children. Um, and so the work has always been uh, collaborative. It's always been centered on pathways of uh, children's development in concert with uh, working with teachers as we try to understand uh, children's thinking and how to promote uh, change in thinking and what might be some uh, productive ways of going about doing this. So that, that's yeah. essentially the enterprise I've been engaged in for a number of years now. Yeah, and Rich, you mentioned those driving questions, and I was hoping you could dive in a little bit deeper and talk to me a little bit about the key aims of this research. So what were you hoping to achieve? Well, um, uh, one issue for me is uh, how do children's ideas about uh, quantity develop, especially um, ideas about uh, measurement? And what are the implications uh, for uh, measurement for other realms of mathematics, 
like uh, how children might learn and think about uh, fractions, and also the general idea of quantity and its role in science. So as we encourage uh, students to get a grip on uh, natural systems, they can deploy uh, some of the mathematical systems that they've been learning about as uh, models of these uh, systems. Of course, there's more to learning about science than mathematizing it, but this was a, an important element of the, of the kinds of questions that I'd be asking. So for, for example, um, if you think about a coordinate system as an intersection of two rulers, uh, we develop these kinds of ideas uh, with children in third and fifth grade. And then we would pose um, some explorations of things in science, like uh, density of um, materials, where they would kind of coordinate uh, weight and volume, or uh, plant growth, where they would coordinate um, change uh, in height or um, relative bushiness of a plant over time. And the mathematical systems allowed them to see things that they otherwise couldn't see just by, by looking at the, uh, at the natural world. So I was trying to cultivate um, a kind of vision of, of uh, natural systems by deploying ideas in mathematics as models of these systems. But as we did that, um, the mathematical investigations grew too because there were new kinds of quantities and new kinds of relationships to consider. So that would expand uh, the realm of uh, the mathematics that we explored. So essentially it was uh, trying to set up, um, and uh, I think successfully so, a synergy between uh, mathematics and uh, science education. Yeah, and I was hoping to just take a moment now, Rich, just to run through some of the key facts about this research. So which age group or year group were involved? How many schools? When did you begin this research? Could you tell me a little bit more information? Sure. Um, well, it's always centered in uh, elementary grades with maybe uh, with uh, some work in uh, sixth and seventh grades, middle school here. Um, but uh, largely the idea was to, um, in a, I, I worked, I started working very small with just a few teachers in one school. And gradually that expanded to, uh, to many teachers in four schools and then that expanded to uh, teachers that weren't in the state, but were in other states and so on. So I've um, conducted this work in a variety of uh, school settings, uh, both uh, close to home and uh, you know, at a distance. And of course, at a distance always presents some interesting and new kinds of uh, challenges, uh, both in work with teachers and in learning about uh, students. So uh, that work has always, um, as I say, spanned elementary grades. And some of the work that it did in statistical reasoning uh, included uh, middle school uh, students, uh, sixth and seventh graders. Yeah, fantastic. And as you mentioned, Rich, you were trying to engage children in areas of mathematics that are critical to STEM education, especially the areas of geometry, measurement, data, and chance. I'm wondering if you could touch on now what it actually looks like in the classroom for a teacher doing this kind of work. Sure. Well, um, so let's take an example of data. When we first started working in data, um, we found that teachers were uh, collecting uh, data, um, but there really weren't any questions in mind. So data was like an enterprise uh, divorced from questions. So the first thing we kind of did is said, hey, um, what kinds of questions could we pose uh, that children could be involved in the generation of data. 
so that they could understand ideas um, about data as uh, constructed uh, by measuring things and uh, not as uh, received in uh, texts or, or um, just handed to them as, as lists of, um, of numbers. Um, then, uh, as uh, children uh, collected data to answer questions and uh, very simple questions in early grades, like what kinds of things do we prefer for lunch? Well, then how do you go about asking uh, questions like that of, um, of your peers? And if you have responses, how do you organize those responses? So these are issues about um, data organization and structure. And then, well, if you do those kinds of things, how might you create a visualization of the data that tells somebody else um, what seems uh, to be pattern in the data? And so we would involve uh, children from the ground up, from questions to data collection, to data organization, to data visualization, to uh, inference about uh, whatever the question uh, happened to be. For example, in that first grade class I'm thinking about, they went off to the school cafeteria and argued for a change in the menu based upon the preferences mm. expressed by the children in the school. And then there are some other issues, of course, that occur. Like, so if you have a set of responses, um, how representative is that? Who does it represent? Can you use it to predict what might happen again? And so on. And so from these very humble beginnings, we just uh, kept uh, building uh, these ideas and we'd extend them to natural systems and take samples as we studied um, ecology and school playgrounds and, and so on. Uh, and so um, I've tried to give you a sense that it's um, kind of uh, humble beginnings and consistent uh, elaboration uh, throughout the grades because we were trying to take a, a developmental approach to the growth of these ideas and, and uh, ways of understanding. And I'm interested in hearing more about student engagement. So what has been the response from students so far? And have you found that they've become more engaged in their mathematics lessons as a result of this work? Yes, well, that, um, that was very noticeable uh, to parents. Um, students would come home and they uh, would do things and they wouldn't stop talking about mathematics and science. And that was an unusual behavior at the time. And so um, that is, in fact, um, how uh, teachers um, were essentially given permission to uh, conduct uh, these kinds of investigations because there was a lot of support in the community. Uh, eventually, it even got to the point in studies of ecology where um, the students were making presentations of their findings about uh, some of the local systems uh, to uh, town engineers and, um, and other uh, civic uh, groups. Um, and it, it really was a, an issue. Um, one of the things they studied were uh, retention ponds, because one of the places we were working in was a, a prairie, and uh, they were uh, developing uh, new housing. Well, uh, as you develop new housing, what happens is you have more runoff uh, from storms and that runoff, uh, unless it's regulated somehow, uh, goes into rivers and uh, it's too high of a temperature, it um, uh, decreases dissolved oxygen, you get fish kills. So um, the engineering response to this is to create retention ponds. But from the, what the engineers forgot about is that um, these over time would become living ecologies. And so that's what the students were studying and they were thinking about how to alter um, and have uh, alter the 
uh, water, ground, uh, interface, native plantings, and so on, and then trying to study uh, what happened with uh, water quality. So all of this was of a genuine interest um, to uh, the town where they lived. We'll be back after this quick message from our sponsor. You're listening to a podcast from Teacher Magazine, supported by the Australian Volunteers Program. Did you know the Australian Volunteers Program is looking for teachers to support communities overseas? You can become a remote volunteer and help support positive change in developing countries. There are lots of education assignments now online. Visit australianvolunteers.com to find the right volunteer program assignment for you. And I'd like to talk now a little bit about how the research is aligned with parallel efforts in science education to introduce children to the signature practices of the sciences, particularly areas of invention and models of natural systems. Could you tell me a little bit about this part of the research project? Um, Sure. So um, I think I alluded earlier to this idea of like, well, if we study growth, Um, we have this problem of, well, so what does that mean and what is it and how do we characterize uh, change over time? And so some of the uh, mathematical tools that um, children develop about measure, about coordinate systems and so on, uh, can be redeployed uh, to study ideas about growth. And for example, children uh, predicted that uh, growth would be like, um, like a copy machine, you know, it would be kind of a linear expansion. And then as they started growing things and taking measures of height at particular days of growth, they discovered that, oh, wait a minute, um, the uh, rates uh, are changing over time. And in fact, uh, they have a characteristic uh, form that looks like an S. So from a professional point of view, someone would say, oh, it's following a logistic function. But of course, this was unknown to them. So it was a surprise. And then they studied roots and they were, uh, had to invent ways of tracking uh, root growth. And then there was another surprise, that as they looked at roots, they grew uh, faster than shoots, uh, but they had the same kind of uh, S shape. And so um, uh, this is kind of the, the flavor of the, of the uh, pursuit of uh, representational redescriptions of natural systems using uh, conceptual tools at hand in mathematics, but also um, other things like um, developing uh, uh, capacities to engage in uh, scientific drawings. Like, what do you do when you're a scientist and you draw? Like, why don't we always just take photos? Um, what, we, what are we trying to do with drawing? We're trying to highlight and suppress, uh, highlight features that we think are important. Don't worry about some of the others. And so we're, again, trying to help uh, children develop an understanding of natural systems by engaging in some of the ways in which scientists approach understanding these systems. And this is just such a fascinating body of research, but I'm thinking about the teachers and school leaders listening to this episode today, and I'm wondering what are some of the key takeaways from this work that perhaps they could apply in their own school contexts? Well, uh, one thing that I I think is critical is that um, we look at children's uh, development and we try to identify core ideas and try to think about how to systematically support them throughout uh, early schooling. And so rather than lock ourselves in great boxes, 
This argues for uh, teachers um, and administrators working together uh, school-wide and perhaps with other schools uh, to think about um, how conditions of instruction uh, might be arranged so that uh, children have uh, agency in developing mathematics and, and science. Um, it's uh, one thing uh, to read something in a text, and there's a great deal that one can learn from that, and of course that's a great thing. Uh, but that needs to be coupled with uh, some uh, practical experience in uh, generating these systems for yourself, both in mathematics and in science. In mathematics, uh, children ought to be given the liberty to pursue questions, just as we encourage them to do in science. So I think those are um, uh, things that can be adapted to uh, local circumstances. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned earlier, Rich, you'll be presenting at ACER's research conference in August. The name of your keynote is Accountable Assessment. Could you explain what Accountable Assessment is exactly? Well, I um, kind of um, did that tongue-in-cheek in a way. Uh, in this country, accountable assessment uh, generally means um, that uh, students take a test at the end of the year that's um, uh, standardized, and uh, inferences are made about the quality of their learning and about the quality of their instruction from these uh, single uh, events. And um, often, if you uh, try to probe about, well, what is being tested, it's uh, very difficult to understand uh, other than very vaguely, well, it's about uh, mathematical um, uh, domains, it's about scientific realms, but uh, really what is the image of, uh, of growth and development of knowledge? And for the most part, I think if you push a little bit, you find that there isn't any. So I've been working with a colleague at Berkeley, Mark Wilson, who believes um, that uh, measurement uh, should be anchored uh, to descriptions of uh, student thinking and progress in student thinking. So um, one, of the, one of the ways in which I think um, assessment should be accountable is that we ought to be able to say very clearly uh, what it is that we're measuring and how we understand uh, student learning and how the items that students are responding to relate uh, to uh, what we call uh, constructs. But um, more importantly, uh, there's a great opportunity uh, for this kind of uh, teaching. It relies upon diagnosis of uh, what students are thinking and capitalizing on variability in student thinking. And so uh, teachers uh, can be a great uh, resource for um, guiding instruction by understanding how their students are thinking. And the project um, that I'm engaged in, I'll be talking about, is to um, make assessment accountable uh, to students and teachers. So it's not something done to them, but rather it's part of something that is ongoing and that benefits them. And then the critical issue with the collaboration uh, with uh, Mark Wilson, who will also be talking at the conference, is uh, to say, well, can we take that information from the classroom, which is denser and richer than you can get from a single-shot assessment, and can we incorporate it uh, into the same, um, the, the same uh, testing approach uh, that governs a standardized assessment? 
And so uh, what I'll be talking about are efforts to work with teachers to explore the feasibility of that enterprise. And so just finally then, Rich, what do you hope delegates will walk away with after listening to your keynote? What are some of the practical strategies or insights you'll be leaving them with? Well, um, hopefully they'll uh, begin to entertain the idea that um, assessment can, can be uh, capitalized as part of their uh, everyday enterprise of teaching and learning, and that they can have a voice and a contribution uh, to uh, larger systems of assessment, and that um, hopefully we're developing uh, the technological means, the kind of digital tools and the statistical models that can uh, bring that vision um, to uh, reality. Of course, it'll be a process of uh, testing things out uh, and, and the like, but um, I think it's uh, way, way overdue, especially in this country. Maybe it might be a little bit more enlightened in Australia. I can only hope. <laughs> Professor Rich Lira, it's been lovely chatting with you. You've certainly given listeners a lot to think about ahead of research conference next month. Thanks for sharing your insights with Teacher Magazine. Uh, thank you. That's all for today's episode. If you love this chat with Professor Lira and would like to listen to his keynote at Research Conference, please visit the Research Conference website for all the details on how to register for the event. Rich will only be one of the keynote speakers at the event. You can also hear from Professor Di Seaman from RMIT University, Professor Mark Wilson from the University of California, Berkeley and the University of Melbourne, and from ACER's very own Professor Jeff Masters. There's a whole host of other speakers at the five-day online event. Check out researchconference.com.au for all the details. And of course, as always, be sure to subscribe to our podcast channel on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud so you can be notified of any new episodes. And while you're there, we'd love for you to rate and review us in your podcast app. You've been listening to a podcast from Teacher, supported by the Australian Volunteers Program. Are you interested in supporting communities overseas? Become a remote volunteer. Visit australianvolunteers.com to learn more.